Hi, my name is Moshe Kindler, and I'm the publisher of The Jewish Link. Hi, this is Elizabeth Kratz. I'm editor of The Jewish Link. And you're on The Jewish Link Pitch Meeting Podcast. So, Elizabeth, we are, you're hard at work on the third annual Jewish Link Wine Guide. Okay, and it's a pleasure to be here. I know actually uh, we're taking away work. You're actually supposed to be working on the wine guide. We decided to take a break and film this uh, this episode of the pitch meeting, and um, I couldn't think of anyone else better uh, to invite. And uh, please tell us about our guest. Okay, thank you. Our first guest, specifically related to the Jewish Link Wine Guide, is no better than Yossi Horwitz, who is our founding judge of the Jewish Link Wine Guide. Uh, now in its or now concluding its third wrap-up and we're about to launch our third magazine and you have a beautiful and great history in wine as a hobbyist initially and we definitely wanted for you to just tell us about yourself and the Jewish Link pitch meeting is really just to highlight you and talk about all the amazing things that you've accomplished in your life so far. Okay. Um, we could so, be here a while. Yeah. So I'm five, nine and a half. <laughs> Not that far back. Not yeah. that far back. Well, okay. that's what I am now. So How I'm long have you been five, nine? <laughs> actually, I just want to. I just want to cut in be five, before Yossi launches. I just want to say that I, I, you're actually it's funny. We've probably known each other for about 14, 15 years, and our first interaction was at an organization called Leket. Yossi and I have mutual friends in common, and Yossi helped me get started the Leket Israel. Wine Club, okay, which I think was one of his first, his second foray besides Yossi's corkboard, which he'll tell you about. And I, we had a great time doing it, and I learned a lot about the business of wine and uh, and about Yossi. So, really, I'm actually personally happy to the see. Best you here thing well. you learned was not to go into wine as a business, which is why you found yourself here and not uh, running a wine show <laughs> or a wine club. Yes. Very bad business. Lots of fun, not great business. Um, so wrong message, by the way. Wrong message. Okay. <laughs> Wrong message. Wine we'll journalism is a good business, yes, though, right? Definitely, okay. and wine advertising. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so I grew up in Israel. I actually was born in the U.S. My parents moved to Israel when I was when I was a kid, and grew up in a relatively dry household. Uh, parents didn't drink. There was basically no alcohol in our house. I think there were a couple of bottles of seven 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 brandy. Probably dating myself by that. However, um, my father only ever made kiddush on wine. We never made kiddush on grape juice for halachic reasons. And you know, at the time, I think in Israel it was the King David Concord was mm. the was the was the wine of choice for that. Mm-hmm. Very sweet. And you know, my dad's idea of drinking was he would have a shot of amaretto once a year for, you know, somebody's yurtzeit or, or 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 birthday. And when I was sixteen, um, one of my dad's employees uh, came to Seder with a bottle, one of the first bottles of kosher Bordeaux. Um, so that was 32 years ago, and and I loved it. And it was the first time I'd ever had dry red wine in my life, and I really liked it. And the guest, my dad's my dad's employee was a little bit of a hippie. My dad's very straight laced, and I think she got a lot of personal enjoyment out of utzing my father and, and annoying him. And this developed into a primary way for her to to do that by encouraging my interest in alcohol and wine, and which she did. And I started to go to a wine store in Yerushalayim, in uh, downtown Yerushalayim, called Avi Ben. Not a lot of 16-year-old uh, kids were wandering into wine stores back in the, in the 90s. And Avi Ben himself, who, who subsequently opened a number of different stores and stopped working at that specific store, 
really took me under his wing and every Friday there were tastings and you know the the underage drinking was not really a thing in Israel where you could buy cigarettes at six and really taught me about wine and I started to to go to to go to these tastings that they would run and at some point before I graduated high school I kind of hooked up with uh, Daniel Rogov who was the then and to date probably the preeminent Israeli wine critic and he and a group of folks used to go v- actually visit wineries um, and they allowed me to tag along. I was by far the youngest uh, member of the group, the only religious member of the group, uh, but I really learned a lot. We went to different, different wineries and, and really started learning about wine. I was a pretty big nerd at the time, still am, and this was like something I could really sink my teeth into and, and just really developed an interest in it over the years. At some point, started branching out into, into, into food as well, really started to develop an interest in food and used to go to, we used to go to restaurants and used to write little reviews of them and send them out to, you know, a couple friends, friends and family and things like that. And, you know, over the years you become, as many people who are into wine know, you become the kind of the go-to person in your community of your friends who, when people want to know something about wine, they just ask you. I had no idea, by the way, this started in high school, pre-college. I, I assume this was a college thing. I had no idea you were underage drinking. So I'm yeah, gonna... oh, not not condoning it, definitely. But this also was not your primary job at any point, is that correct? Wine has never, is never, and will never be a, well, I don't want to say will never, because you never know, but, but to date, wine has never been anything other than a hobby, some might say uh, borderline, if not more than that, obsession. Um, but but it's never been a professional career. I, I've never um, I've never taken money for it. I've never engaged in a business related aspects of it. I but by virtue of having spent you know immeasurable amounts of time for the last thirty two years in the kosher wine industry, I only drink and taste and write about kosher wines. Um, I certainly have a significant awareness and understanding of of the wonderful world of kosher wine, both on the business, strategic, marketing, and obviously winemaking side of things, but no, it has never been a professional uh, thing. And so so yeah, can I interrupt you and say, what is your, or redirect, what is your primary career? And I heard recently that you have made a large move from Manhattan across the river, the Hudson, to Teaneck. Can you tell us about that also? So my, my day job is that of a corporate attorney. I've been a practicing attorney for 20, 20 odd years. I practiced for a couple of years in Israel, mostly venture capital and, and other private transactional work. And I hadn't gotten to that in my story, but when we moved, since we moved to the US, I've practiced at, at a number of major law firms, also doing private equity, family office, transactional work, and things like that. Not a job, not a nine to five job that leaves um, a lot of time for, for um, you know, personal endeavors or hobbies, but you know, like most things, if you want it, if you're interested enough in it and you make time for the things that are important to you, you know, I have five kids. I don't really know what they do most of the day because most of my time is spent on wine. That was a joke. But but, um, by the but, one, but I do spend a lot of time on wine outside of my day job. I've always been impressed, by the way. I've never understood it. I've, that's the mystery of Yossi Horowitz is how you've been able to keep a day job and do all that you're doing. So so to answer Elizabeth's question, yes, I, we, when we, I, that will come in the story. I'm going to delay an answer to your question. Just to round up the uh, the story of me, okay. and so um, so I started getting you know over the years I developed this expertise and and you know it's something that you can continuously learn about is 
as you all know, Elizabeth, you know, wine is, 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 a, is a rabbit hole of endless proportions, and you can always learn more and, and, and more about the subject. You know, and I effectively kind of grew up in the world of kosher wine as the world of kosher wine evolved. And I was kind of there almost from the beginning of its real manifestations and, and really have, have grown with the world and seen kind of from its, from its real, real beginnings till, you know, the exponential growth that it's seen over the last probably decade and, you know, even more so on, uh, in the last couple of years. When I, when I was 30, my, we moved, to, we moved to, to the U.S. For, for my oldest son was born very early had a lot of special needs and we moved to the U.S. Um, for medical reasons and that was when I started uh, writing my newsletter in, in, in 2004 when, you know, before that I had kind of been, you know, I used to send a lot of emails, I answered a lot of questions, but in 2004, you know, right before Pesach, I had moved here, you know, I had a lot of friends in the U.S. despite having grown up in Israel for the, for the prior 25 years and a lot of all of them knew that I knew about wine and now I was here and could answer, you know, questions about the wines that were available in the U.S. because especially back then there was a lot of wine. There were a lot of wines that were only available in Israel. So a lot of the stuff that I would drink or taste or talk about was not necessarily widely available in the U.S. But that, by the time I had moved here, you know, so I used to get a lot of questions. And then after answering 50, 60, 100 emails of people who had written to me that era of Pesach, like what one should I buy for the state or what was, I decided uh, that, that it was not an efficient uh, use of my time. And I decided to create a newsletter. And, you know, back in the day, I used just Gmail and I put 200 friends and family in BCC and sent out my first uh, newsletter with the intention of writing about four wines every week. I was going to write about two whites and two reds. Uh, even back then, I was, you know, very into white, uh, unlike most, uh, you know, the mass market kosher wine consumers and, and started sending out. And that was it. And that was kind of how it started. And it just started basically spamming friends and family using BCC on <laughs> Gmail. And that continued for, for a couple of years. You know, it slowly grew from 200 to 400 to 500 to six, you know, over the years. And at some point, when I hit 500 um, members, uh, that's the most you can use, or at least at the time was the most you could put in a BCC. So I was forced to switch to Google Groups. And that continued for many years. And, 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 and the growth of the newsletter, as far as its membership, which is around 11,000 members today, um, really is, 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 is reflects the trajectory of the, of the growth of the kosher wine world. Because in the, first, in the first couple of years, I would add 100, 200 subscribers a year, whereas in the last, there was a big growth kind of pre-COVID in the few years right before COVID, where the growth was two to 3,000 people every year were, were, were signing up and, 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 and sticking and not, and not leaving. Uh, how many of them actually read it? You know, I don't know. I know how many people open it. That's that's the extent of the uh, Big Brother spying uh, that my current uh, server does. Yes. What is the name of this magical newsletter? So the newsletter is not. You know, unfortunately, my my creative my creative limits were were expunged by the writing itself, and it's simply called uh, the newsletter itself is called Yossi's Wine Recommendations. Uh, creative. Um, <laughs> and the reason it's called and and my kind of wine education forum. There's a website, Twitter. And, and various social media things is overall just called Yossi's Corkboard. Again, not the most inventive of, of things, but the reason it's called Yossi's Wine Recommendations is because while I do taste almost every kosher wine every year, something that's gotten much harder as the number of wines every year has grown beyond 5,000 wines a year, um, I only write about wines that I would recommend. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that I only write about wines that I personally enjoy or would buy, but I only write about wines that I think are good. 
right? And everybody's tastes are different. One is definitely a subjective thing, as you guys definitely know, because I repeat this quite often. You should only drink the wines that you like, unless it's the, you know, the Bartonura Blue Moscato bottle, which you should never drink. We're going to edit that out probably because they're probably a big advertiser, but, you know, I got to call it. I say it how it is, and that's just a little joke. But, but as a general matter, I really only write and recommend wines that I, that I, that I would suggest. So any, any wine that I've written about in my hundreds of newsletters over the years is, is a wine that I would be okay if somebody brought it to, to me as a gift for Shabbos, if somebody served it to me, uh, what have you. So we, and then thank you very much for that very complete answer, Yessie. Okay. Uh, we wanted to ask you whether you have moved across the river. Yes. So, so okay. So I moved to the U.S. back in 04. We moved to the city, to Manhattan, uh, where there was a fantastic school for my, for, my, for my child. And we lived there for the last 18 years um, in an apartment. I have five children and a, and a dog. My kids range in age from 21 to 4. And when COVID started, it, uh, the apartment, which used to feel very uh, large and spacious, uh, had outdoor space and other nice things, suddenly started to feel a lot less uh, spacious. And, you know, a family member had, a, had an empty house in Englewood, offered it to us during COVID, and we, we moved out there. Um, and once my kids and myself got a taste of the outdoors and space, it was going to be very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. And we began to realize that our time in the city had pretty much come to an end. Uh, we spent two years commuting our kids back to the city for school, but ultimately uh, decided that Teaneck was, was going to be the best place for, for our children and moved to Teaneck about a year and a half ago and finally settled into our own house a few months ago. Very nice. So welcome to Teaneck, first of all. That's exciting. Want, let's move on to the Jewish Link Wine Guide and its precursor, which we are allowed to mention, the Jewish Week, which stopped printing during the COVID year. And so I guess, could you tell us so, sort of from your perspective, what that transition was like? Transition from the, the Jewish, Jewish week, week to the Jewish link. Yes. Okay. I'm going to try and do this without <laughs> offending a, anyone. It's a good question, right? It's not you know, really my forte. But, but so, so as you said, I, you know, probably 15 years ago, um, I was friendly with, I am friendly with Michael Dorf, the owner of City Winery, who happens to be on the board of the Jewish Week. And he asked me to, to, to start this wine guide for the, for the Jewish uh, Week in advance of, of Pesach, to blindly taste a bunch of wines and come up with, you know, some recommendations for, for Pesach. And, you know, the original, uh, there were a couple of judges. Michael was one of them. I was another. Um, Ilan Toker, Zichron al was another one. And, and, and I think there were one or two other, 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 other judges at the time. And we did launch to a big, big, uh, big fanfare because the New York Times happens to have this, um, this feature in their Sunday paper called in Metropolitan called A Day in the Life of, and they, they, mm-hmm. they interview and showcase various people. And they happened to be showcasing Michael Dorf the day that we were doing the tastings in the winery. So actually, the, the, you know, that was... You know, my first time ever being in, in the paper for my wine things was in the New York Times. This is obviously a significant upgrade. So thank you for offering me that opportunity. You're welcome. Um, but So we did that for 10 years and kind of every year improved and, and adjusted and made a lot of changes uh, to improve the, the quality of the judging, the quality of the rankings. You know, and there was always a, a lot of give and take between myself, 
who while not a, a, a career professional of wine at this point would probably be uh, fair to deem myself a professional wine writer or critic and the commercial needs of the paper and the other uh, panelists who are less uh, well-versed in judging and tasting wines. Uh, but we did together manage to over the years improve it and I think I think it provided a real service to to, to the community, Erev Pesach, you know, coming out with a list of wines that, that a panel of peers, you know, whatever, however you define that, ha- had chosen. And, and like you said, you know, the Jewish Week, uh, unfortunately, went out of uh, print, for, unfortunately. About three years ago. You know, mm-hmm. unfortunately, depending on, you know, who you ask. And having had a long-time relationship with both of you, uh, was happy to, to help relaunch the endeavor under a new, uh, under new banner. And as we did with the Jewish uh, Week, have spent the last, you know, two or three years consistently tinkering and improving. And I think, it, you know, as, as you realize, it's a consistent, uh, consistent, um, consistently in motion and we're always working to improve it. But, you know, the main shift, I guess, was it's a little closer to, to my house now to come and taste the wines. Um, and, you know, it's a set panel of judges, unlike at the Jewish Week, where there was a constant change. I was the constant. I, I was the judge in every, for every one of the 10 uh, issues. I was the founding judge there as well. And, but here we seem to have kind of settled on a more or less consistent base of panelists. I don't know if you have any, if that answers your question. Um, well, one second, yeah. can I just say, how come, why is it that all the other judges are afraid of you? Yes. <laughs> I, I, you know, that's, you know, I don't know if that's nice or bad to hear. I think in general, I tend to be somewhat opinionated and don't really, um, don't really spend a lot of time worrying about what comes out of my mouth. I think that in general, I'm a nice guy. I like people, but but and if you know me, you know me. And sometimes I'm not as careful with what I say as as other people are. But we're going to strike that. I tend to say what I think, mm-hmm. and I never intend to upset or offend anyone. And therefore, I'm less conscientious of whether it may actually be offensive or a thing. I tend to rely on the fact that that's not my intention, and you know, kind of go with that. I, you know, I think that, I don't know about necessarily this panel of judges, all of whom are people I consider my good friends. So, you know, without being specific about, about this group of people, I think that, you know, I, de- I do tend to know more about wines, kosher wines tasting than most people, at least certainly in the kosher wine world. And that may, you know, that may give more gravitas or weight to my thoughts or opinions. And therefore, when I express one, it's, it, it may, others may find it difficult to contradict or argue with me. I don't know if that's that's a pretty politically correct uh, answer for me, uh, but, I think, but, but, but I don't know I'll if that just, was the answer yeah. you were looking for. I'll just but. say this. Yossi has always been, over the years, was always very careful to make sure that pieces that we put in the paper were, uh, you know, especially wine-related, that were they were coming from, that making sure that the sourcing was correct, oh, and uh, he, was, he was on my case to making sure, hey, Moshe, there's a divide between, hey, what's really an advertisement, what's really independent, and uh, he actually made us, he made us a little more sensitive to that stuff. Well, I do think, I mean, I, I really view my word, my, my, my job in the world, world, I mean, I do it for my own, you know, I obviously don't get money for it, I do it for my own personal enjoyment, it's something that I truly love, and, and, and you know, like learning about, like doing, you know, I travel, I go around the world, I meet a lot of interesting people, and you know, quite frankly, for my day job, it's quite it's quite an efficient icebreaker. When you go to a, a meeting or a conference and there's mingling going on, when people ask you what you do and you tell them you're a lawyer, that's pretty much the end of the conversation. Nobody really wants to talk to you about what you do. But if you tell them, I, you know, I write about wine or I make wine or I, or, or, or I taste wine, 
that's you know a much more interesting uh, topic of conversation and, and you know has definitely helped me professionally with networking and business development and things like that as well. Not why I do it. The main reason I do it is about education. You know, it's something that I love. I think wine is an integral part to, uh, of should be an integral part of everyone's life. Certainly, as an observant Jew, it's intertwined in pretty much every religious observant act that we do except maybe fast days and and I think you know it's it's an elevated beverage and it's a beverage that that we believe has a, a level of kedusha to it and it's also a, a beverage that brings people together you don't hear a lot of people you know getting together over a bottle of coca-cola but over a bottle of wine it, you know it, it, it's a it's a social lubricant that I think uh, especially in this day and age of craziness where everybody's focusing on you know what makes them different and how much everybody hates each other I think the ability to get together over a bottle of wine and exchange ideas and opinions in a civilized motion I think in a civilized way, I think wine is a tremendous thing. And, you know, I view my job as educating people about it and encouraging people to drink more, not underage and not to excess, obviously, but to, to incorporate wine, you know, into their daily lives. And that, you know, is something that I think I've been relatively successful about, including through, you know, the Rosh Chodesh Club, which and we I, Yeah, well, before, you, before you, I wanted to segue to that, saying you were talking about holy, you know, talking about that kind of, uh, you know, that, that marriage of, you know, hey, not drinking to excess, um, kind of, you know, looking at it as actually something that's even quasi-holy. Uh, I've been hearing about this club for years, this Rosh Chodesh club, and uh, I was told I should try to wrangle an invitation to it. I still have not made it yet to one of them, but I, let's hear about this semi-famous or famous Rosh Chodesh club. Okay, so so there's a, I, I, I did, uh, you know, I did kind of riff the idea from someone else, so I want to give credit where credit's due, but every, and I will, but every every wine collector uh, knows of the problem, so to speak, that they have all these wines that they, you know, have, have curated over the years that are special to them, that have value, not necessarily monetary value, but emotional value or, or, or collector's value or rarity or what have you. And wine is really much better and more fun shared with friends. Sitting alone in your house drinking a bottle of wine has its, you know, advantages, has its moments, as I'm sure many of us ex- explored specifically over COVID, but really sharing wine with friends is, 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 mega enhances the the experience and I think that you know and I found myself as someone who's been collecting wine for quite some time and who has you know a rather extensive collection of interesting wines you know come Friday as I prepare for, for, for Shabbos I would find myself opening and closing the drawers in my wine fridge looking for a bottle that that made sense to serve and consistently rejecting bottles that I did not feel the people coming would appreciate it wasn't that I didn't want to share with them but I felt like if I have a special bottle Sharing it with someone who doesn't understand or appreciate it kind of diminishes the enjoyment of it. And I, you know, my my Shabbos c- circle of friends in the city was not necessarily the same as my wine circle of friends. And I, there were very few people with whom I kind of socialized on a regular basis who also appreciate these wines. And I constantly found myself depriving myself of my own wines on Shabbos, which is the day, you know, the holiest day of the week, and and the day where you know sitting back and relaxing with a bottle of wine makes the most sense, and not enjoying it because I didn't have anybody to enjoy it with. And so there's a concept called Open That Bottle Night that the former wine writers of the Wall Street Journal came up with, which was intended to solve this problem, which is one, I think it's a third, one, one, one day a year, the wine lovers around the world get together and everybody brings a special bottle of wine. And it's that Open That Bottle Night, it's that night that was manufactured to create an event, to the right event to open that bottle that you've been saving forever. And so... As I was doing, you know, as I was week after week kind of going through my wines, the, I, an idea came to me, but, you know, I'm not sure why, why the, 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 the wine writers at the Wall Street Journal thought that one 
night a year would suffice for, for this uh, problem. And I decided to incorporate, as you were saying, the, the concept of, you know, Rosh Chodesh, which is a Yom Tov and, and is an opportunity for rebirth and an opportunity for re- introspection with, and a way to celebrate, but as a way to celebrate it, not just by saying Hallel, but by getting together with, with, um, with friends and wine. And again, as most of the wine-related endeavors that I've started over the years, this started in the same way, put together an email, emailed a bunch of my friends, mostly in the city, but also in the five towns, in Teaneck, other places in Bergen County, Riverdale, anywhere within, I'd say, an hour driving distance or even an hour and a half. I said, listen, here's what I'm doing. I have 10 spots, which, you know, was, was, was uh, the, I've 10 spots, bring a bottle of wine. It's gotta be seven years past vintage. And, and we're gonna get together and, and, and drink some wines, drink, bring, bring, drink some special wines. And not, you know, it was in my house. I didn't know where this was going. It was limited to 10 people because that was kind of, honestly, how many people my dining room table could, could comfortably fit. And I felt like if people were gonna bring special wines, when you divide a wine bottle by more than 10, you're kind of limited to, to an unsatisfactory uh, amount of wine. And I felt like people might feel gypped you know, if they bought a special bottle, I had to share it with 15 people. Um, it also felt like, uh, you know, it was the, the number of people that could fit around the table and socialize properly. And I wanted it to be a fun experience. Food was really not intended to be part of this at all for the first. Um, and, and I really went out to Kosher Marketplace, which was across the street, bought a couple of deli wraps, a couple of chicken nuggets, and thought that was going to be that. Um, and, and it was a great success. And one of the greatest parts of its success was a good friend of mine, um, Yadija Kohn, who, who at the time was, was a relatively just home kind of amateur chef, but a good friend of mine from, from you know, the wine world. And he called me up a couple days before. He's like, listen, I've got these ribs. They've been, I've been sous videing them for a couple days. I barely knew what sous vide was back, back then. This was 10 years ago. Uh, do you mind if I bring them? I'm like, sure, bring them. And you know, he brought these 72 hour sous vide uh, um, back ribs to you know, where everybody got two ribs and nobody ate anything else. I mean, these were literally the best piece of meat I'd had at, to that point in my life, and nobody ate any of the other food uh, until all the ribs were gone. And it was a great event, we had some amazing wines, and at that point we thought maybe we should do, um, and that's kind of how it started. Uh, I don't, you know, I could really talk about, about you know, the RCC for quite some time, it's, quite a, it's, it's really a baby of mine, and it's, it's something that you know, has evolved. But Yadija was really in- instrumental in making it popular with his incredible uh, cooking, and you know, and he so he cooked for about two years, and every week kind of outdid himself to the point that we had twenty-four course tasting dinners at these like wine dinners, and and truly amazing foods, and really really broadened I think everybody's view of kosher cooking in addition to the amazing wines that we were having every uh, every week, and this was more special because while the wines we were drinking were made by other people. The food we were eating was literally made by Yadija in his house in Long Island and brought an hour and a half to my house in Manhattan in the sous vide containers and in warming drawer, literally in his car every week. And it was really quite amazing. And then I think at some point he just decided it was too much, called me up and said, I'm done. And massive panic attack ensued by me because all these people were really at that point coming if not at least for as much for the food, probably even more for the food than for the wine. And while I had dabbled in cooking in the past and enjoyed food, I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, but wait, can we just, 
the food is it's fascinating to me that the food was not even part of the original intent because now the idea has been copied in multiple cities all over the world including Ranana, San Diego, uh London. So there are about 32 different franchises around the world of this concept. You know, the rules wow. are, you know, as a, as a corporate attorney, I came up with a very rigid set of rules that made sense for me and for the demographic that I was catering to in the city. There's obviously an older demographic slightly, you know, maybe a little bit, you know, more access to older and maybe even more expensive wines. Uh, I have about 180 or 190 people on my list. And, you know, there were nine spots available every week, eight when Yadida was cooking, because both he and I uh, took two of the spots. But it has evolved over the years, and like I said, there are 32 franchises around the world. There's franchises in Paris, London is a major, major one, Miami uh, is, is another one, Strasbourg. Um, there are a couple in Israel, there are, are multiple ones in the United States. There's Teaneck, there's Englewood, West Orange. Um, the one place where we've had difficulty uh, maintaining one is the Five Towns, and, and, and really, while the rules, so to speak, defer from, from venue to venue, they generally involve 10 to 12 people getting together, everybody brings a bottle of wine, and there is a food aspect of it which has become integral to, to the enjoyment of the events. But what it really has created is similar to the fact that being, like, like we know that being Orthodox is almost like belonging to the world's greatest fraternity. Anywhere in the world you go, if they're Orthodox Jews, you're kind of going to be, have, a, have people. So the wine, the RCC has, has really created a, a significant sense of community among wine lovers around the world with various members of different RCCs traveling the world and joining other RCCs and mingling with those people. And really significant and lifelong friendships have been created, uh, you know, over these RCC dinners. The other thing that I think it, it's really uh, helped, and, and this is from the aspect of wine education, is... When I first started, there was a very small, limited group of people who were aging their wines and really understood that you that there are wines that you buy today and you store professionally or at least you know with the right temperature and humidity um, for eight to ten to twelve years before you can really enjoy them in their fullest. This was really a concept that was not well known or well utilized by by many. And over the last eight years, it's really become it's really penetrated mainstream you know, kosher wine consumers' um, thought process where people buy wines, if not for the purpose of bringing them to an RCC, but for the purpose of aging them. And it's something that's really the RCC has brought to the forefront. And really, other than my children, if you ask me what is the thing that I am most proud of to date, it is probably the creation of and the expansion of the RCC throughout the world. That's wow. exciting. Any plans for you guys all to get together for the big RCC uh, gathering? So many. So people have suggested, um, you know, having an RCC of the RCC hosts and things like that. There's a lot of plans underway. You know, I I also as a hobby do do make my own wine uh, here and there and have an annual dinner for 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 people who participate in that. And at some point, you know, with the idea of always you know always uh, reaching higher. The, there, were, there were plans in motion for an 100-course kind of day, like a breakfast, lunch, and dinner, showcasing the wines. Uh, COVID put an end to that, but, but I'm hoping to, to do it, you know, in conjunction with a charity, you know, like Leket or something like that, where, so that the, you know, the hedonistic aspect of it will be tempered by, by uh, positive, uh, positive vibes and doing well. 
tell tell me a little bit about tell us a little bit about uh, you making your own wine. I've known you've been doing your own wine. I see you, I see you walking in and out of the office carrying boxes sometimes. I, I know some of your customers. How do you? So they're not really customers. I I I I, you know, it was really just the next evolution of being involved in the in 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 the wine, the wine world was to be to be a creator, as you'll see in the article that I wrote for the Jewish Wine Wine Guide about professional winemakers. Who are you know have many of them have their own kind of wine projects that enables them to kind of have their creative process be their own and not be subject to any other requirements. That was a little bit about what I was getting to. I wanted to allow winemakers the opportunity to make the wines that they wanted to make, as opposed to the wines that they felt that they had to make to make money or to satisfy the the the, the public. And so I got together with a bunch of different winemakers and I said, let's make a personal blend that expresses kind of your winemaking philosophy. I will, I will cover all the costs up front, so you don't have to worry about it. The wine will be pre-sold, we'll make it together, and we'll blend it together. And basically I created a chabura of people who everybody kind of contributes their portion, their share of, 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 of the financial things up front to a bunch of winemakers, and the winemaker basically makes private wine uh, for a group of people. This is, you know, again, when I started this eight or nine years ago, it wasn't, a, a rel- it wasn't that common, pretty much nobody else was doing this. Um, a lot of people make private label wines, which is you go to a winery and you say, instead of having your label on it, put my label on it and I'll call it my own wine. These, these are standout, unique wines that are made by the winery and myself, by the winemaker and myself, solely for our group. The winemaker doesn't even get any bottles of it. They usually you know, come to my dinner and get to taste their own wine there. But again, it's not a commercial thing. I lose money on this. It's not, it's not a business. It's not The wine's not sold anywhere. You can't buy it anywhere. You kind of have to be part of our Chabura, and it's pretty limited. It's the um, real labor of love. It's definitely an obsession. Um, but again, it's fun. I travel around the world. I hang out with the people I like. I make wine. It's it's not a... It, it, it takes a lot of effort, but I wouldn't consider it work. <laughs> well, but what would you... If, if you... If money was no object, or if there was no limitation on travel or time, what... What kinds of wines would you bring to the kosher world that we don't have? What what other improvements could we perhaps put into our sites that might really be, you know, someone listening might say, hey, that's a good idea. I want to taste that. So if you if you look at my newsletter over the years, there there's always been kind of the holy grail, so to speak, to borrow from a non-Jewish uh, terminology of wines in the kosher world that that, that existed in the in the non-kosher world that ne- that weren't in the kosher world. You know, for many years it was Pinot Noir, which, which you know, there were a number of Israeli wineries making Pinot Noir, a number of California wineries making kosher Pinot Noir, but it really wasn't kind of, it wasn't Burgundy, which is considered kind of the epitome of what Pinot Noir is supposed to be, topic for another another time. Um, and that's been brief. You know, now there's, I don't know, 20 or 30 um, different Burgundy wines being made kosher, some of them fantastic. Um, and, you know, then there was German Riesling, which was made for a couple of years, but, you know, the difficulty of selling German wines to, to Jews is, you know, is not something that, that is surprising. Um, and, and Italian wine was another, another uh, kind of genre that was, that was underutilized, you know, for, for many reasons. Mostly it was complicated for the consumer to understand. It was complicated to make. It was very broken up. And, you know, the last couple of years, uh, primarily driven by one 
uh, by Ralph Madeb, who's one of the partners in M&M Importers, has made a tremendous breakthrough and, and brought many, many fabulous Italian wines to market, along with you know some of the other imported distributors like Royal Wine and Allied. Um, so over the years, it keeps getting better, and you know with 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 the with the Jewish need for consistently to have change and something new, which is not necessarily a good thing in the wine world, right? I mean, these some of these French chateaus make the same wine, the same plots for seven hundred years. Whereas in Israel, the, the, the primary question that a, that a winemaker or winery gets asked is, what's new? Mm. Which is probably devastating for a winemaker, but, but, but um, <laughs> you know, the constant need to evolve and grow. And listen, the kosher wine industry is, is, is relatively in its infancy, right? And it's not yet mainstream. It's not yet there. It happens to be unique because of the religious aspects of it that we're using, that basically every kosher observant, observing family needs wine whether it's for Seder or for Shabbos or whatever it knows, there is a touch of alcohol, uh, again, on a Kedusha level, on a, on a holiness level, in every home. So your base point is that literally every person who keeps kosher is a potential consumer of, of kosher wine, which makes it a very unique and different market than any other wine market in the world and something you know, that, 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 um, that, that, that can make for very interesting business and strategic um, uh, thought process, but there, you know, Madeira. There's no kosher Madeira, which mm-hmm. is, you know, my cousin. I have a cousin who consistently asked me to make uh, a Madeira, and there are there are many wineries whose wines I would love to taste, like Chateau de Cam or Romani Conti um, in Burgundy, who don't make kosher wines. And you know, while 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 Royal Wine and other have been very good at convincing more and more high end wineries to 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 create kosher versions of these wines. Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of growth in that area that could still uh, that could still to come and hopefully uh, hopefully it will happen in the near future. Okay. I'm sure you get asked this, uh, but what would you give to the average, to the to the to the masses, so to speak, who aren't as well versed? What would give me like kind of a you know an elevator pitch? You know, what would how how should they kind of like grow in their interest in wine? The, the short pitch, so to speak. So the short pitch is to try new things. The short pitch is to try new things, don't be scared of new things, and always try new things. And, and to understand that while sweet or sweeter wines are easier to understand and to enjoy, they aren't really wines. And I'm not talking about you know wines that are made to be sweet purposely, dessert wines like port or sautern or ice wine or things like that. I'm talking about the wines that, that are still the most widely consumed wines, semi-sweet wines, or things like Moscato, Jeunesse, things like that, which which I view as gateway wines. You know, they provide a very positive aspect of wine education because they get people from drinking soda, cocktails, or other, uh, you know, various types of alcohol, none of which I consume. I, I have a monogamous relationship with wine. Uh, pretty much that water and coffee are the only things I drink. But, but you know, they are gateway wines, but, but they're only gateway wines if you go through the gateway. You know, so if you if you're drinking, if you find yourself drinking Jeunesse or Moscato or things like that, like try a slightly drier wine. Like go to your wine store, email me or ask me or ask your local your local wine expert, whoever that person may be, to recommend a wine that is going to be perceived as sweet. You know, that's fruitier, that's that's more that's fresher, less oaked. That's going to provide you with the same t- sensations as a sweeter wine, but isn't actually sweet. And try and move into slightly more sophisticated wines. The, the 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 best advice I can give to people is, if you enjoy a wine, take a picture of the label, because it's very unhelpful to ask your local wine expert, whoever that may be. Oh, I had this great wine on Chavez. It had a white label, or it had a blue line through it. 
you know, 25 years ago, I could have told you exactly what that wine was with that amount of information. With 5,000 or more wines these days, it's very hard to do that. And if you have something you like, you're going to want to try it again. Take a picture, and that way you'll know. Or take a picture of every wine you try, and only keep the pictures of the wines that you like. The other thing is, try to taste two wines at the same time. Now, I don't mean pour two wines into the same glass. I mean, try two wines in two different glasses, and taste them side by side. And, and try and for yourself, you don't have to tell anybody, you don't have to show it to anybody, but for yourself, try and articulate in a word or two words what's different about them and what you like better about one or the other. I, I have yet to meet someone who, everybody I know who, no, let me rephrase that, many people I know will come out and say, I don't know anything about wine, I like this, I like that, and I say to them, I said, you'd be shocked at how much you actually know about wine, and try this, pour two wines into two glasses and taste them side by side and, and try and articulate for yourself what the differences are. You will be shocked at how much you know about these two wines just by doing that exercise. When you drink one wine over the course of a Shabbos meal, it's very hard to remember what it was other than the fact that it tasted good. Yeah. But when you taste two or three or more, but start with two, and, you be, and that is the best way to learn about wine. Well, thanks so much. We really have to run because we have to finish uh, the wine guide. The wine guide, which is almost done, and is going to be uh, in people's newspapers in March twenty third. Yeah, March twenty third. Oh wow, so that's soon. It's very soon. We have to finish it up, send it to print, and but thanks for being with us. My pleasure. And um, thank you for having me. Look forward to doing this again. Great. Maybe shorter next time. Yes. Thanks for being on our podcast. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on the Jewish Link Pitch Meeting Podcast. If you would like to participate or be in touch with us in any way, please email us at editor at jewishlink.news and follow us and find our podcast wherever you find podcasts. Podcasts.